0: is good. I remember years ago, my dad told a story that I'll never forget as a kid. Dad pioneered churches, and uh, four of them, a couple of them, started in our living room and built into a new building. But he always told a story. Uh, As I grew up, I remember him saying, a man, a rich man came to visit a pastor in a community, and they were going to move to the community. And he told the pastor, he said, "Um, you know, I'd like to see your church. So he called him up, the pastor said, great. So he picked him up at a place and the pastor started taking him around to the hardware store and said, now this is Joe. He He's one of our deacon members and he works in the church and, and he took him to a restaurant where uh, a gal named Carol was working. And he said, you know, this is this is Carol and she teaches our, our little kids Sunday school class. And so around the community, he went, he went to the mill and he went to the places of business and showed him different people from the community, a small community that were in his church. And then the the, the rich man kind of looked at the pastor. He hung his head a little bit. He said, you know, I'm sorry, pastor. I I, I mean, I wanted to see your church. And the pastor hung his head in kind of sorrow. And he said, oh, you mean the building. The church is the people. You and I are the church. I wanna draw your attention to a couple of scriptures in our further challenge about the church that is so vital, Proverbs 11.30, it says, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life and he who wins souls is wise. John 17:18. along the same lines, Jesus says, and I'm using the message paraphrase for this one. It says, in the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, I give them a mission in the world. You've heard me say it, I've said it before, but the church is God's plan to reach the world. There is no plan B. You and I are it, friends. We are the ones that God has called and commissioned on this great endeavor called the church. Telling people how they can have eternal life is the greatest thing you can do for them. Now, we've discussed the church and t- take a look at the fact that the church is really the gathering of believers. Now, of course, we, are, we welcome people who are not followers of Jesus. We, we often do that. But friends, we should never expect for people that are not following Christ to come to Christ because the preacher is preaching a sermon. More than 70% of people that come to church do so because a friend brought them. 7% come because of the church sign and 2% because of the pastor. Most churches in America, over 80% of all churches in America have less than 80 people in them. That is the vast majority of churches. And every time a church is mentioned in scripture, almost all of the time, he's talking about the local body of believers, not the church world. So we at Abundant Life have a special connection here. We are a church family. We share a lot of things. And this is very important. One of the great things that God has called us to do in the church, and it's mentioned in our text here in Proverbs 11 and John 17, is that God has given us a mission, and one of those missions is to win souls. We are called to win people to Christ. If you had a neighbor and they were dying of some terrible, incurable disease, and you had the cure, it would be criminal for not giving them that life-saving information. And there's lots of ways that people have approaches to witnessing. The Bible says the the law of the Lord is fruitful for reviving the soul, that using the law of God is important, like, like uh, the Ray Comfort approach, if you will. And have you ever sinned? Have you ever done anything bad? Well, no, I'm a good person. Have you ever lied? Well, yes, I've lied. Have you ever looked at a woman and lusted after her? Well, yeah, I guess I have. Have you ever uh, stolen something, even though, well, by your own admission, you're a living thief and adulterer at heart, you're going to hell. That's good news, right? but I have the cure. Think about it. If the doctor sat there, you were in the doctor's office and he told you for 20 minutes about this horrible disease you had, you were gonna die this excruciating death. There's gonna be boils on your skin. You were gonna itch from the inside out. You were gonna be vomiting incessantly and it was gonna be a horrible dying death and it was gonna take you three whole months before you died. By the time the symptoms started, you would go, oh my goodness, I'm doomed. How long do you think it would take you to take the antidote that he said, well, this will fix it all? two seconds, right? One and a half for some of you. I'll take the antidote, please. I mean, we should be preaching the word of God, right? Because it convicts the soul. It makes us feel guilty about our sins. So we are desperate, absolutely, for the cure. The cure is Christ. Now, it's worse to keep secret the way that forgiveness, purpose, peace, and eternal life have come into our lives. It's criminal, friends. We have the greatest news, you and I, in the whole world. And this news is that we have been regenerated, we have been born again, we have been made alive. Before you met Christ, you had a dead spirit. His spirit came and revived you and made breathed life into your spirit. The Bible says that because of that alive spirit that we belong to Christ. As Christians, we should not be afraid of telling people about Christ in this world. This is one of our greatest parts of the mission that we have as believers. Are you fearful that maybe somehow your values will be compromised by reaching out to people that are not Christ followers or that are far from God? If the enemy has ever done his work, I believe in the church today, it is to make us fearful and afraid, afraid to touch, afraid to hug, afraid to bleed with and cry with people who are not followers of Christ. What are we afraid of? That we're gonna get killed or have some incurable disease? There's a higher percentage of you rotting from the inside out from bad food poisoning in America than there is for someone hurting you because you told them about Jesus. There's a higher percentage of you that will die in a train crash than any one of us in this room will ever be hurt by telling someone about faith in Christ. This is just the facts, friends. We shouldn't be afraid. And we shouldn't be afraid of rejection either. We should be bold. I know all of you have boldness. Some of you men sitting here are sitting beside beautiful women. And the reason that you are is because you were bold enough to take that first step. You were bold enough to inquire, what is she about? Who is this person? I want to get to know her a little better. And so over time, you got up the guts and you said, you know what, would you like to go out sometime? Would you like to connect or whatever the process was? Maybe you had to ask her father. My oldest son did that. He went to the father. He said, may I take your daughter out for a date? And it was like, wow, that's, Bold, right? I remember Pam taking me to Corrine and Alvin's house and I was mumbling through my words and Alvin kept saying, yes, Larry, what do you want to say? Yes, Larry, he was just teasing me and I was having the hardest time getting the words out. Anyway, some of you are bold though. I know that some of you have faced great family tragedies and you have survived. Some of you have gone through tremendous illnesses. Some of you have gone through difficult marriage situations and you have survived. I know many of you are bold. You've been to war. Some of you have seen battle even on the battlefield. Many of you have been in terrifying situations where I know I've heard you talk about it where you didn't know if if there was going to be a missile strike or um, an improvised IED that would just... You know, hurt you in some way when you're on the battlefield. We live in a military community and it's that way. So I know that courage has been there. I know that it has brought boldness because you've had courage. And if you can face that situation, if you can face the enemy on the battlefield trying to kill you, if you can face uh, uh, your sweetheart's father and asking her for a date, I'm certain that you can tell someone about faith in Christ. The Bible simply says for those who believe in the Lord Jesus and that God raised him from the dead will be saved. I can't think of a better, more simple way for us to, uh, a mission for us to have in an announcement for us to make than that very thing because it is filled with the grace of God. I gotta tell you, I think Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, 28, he says, don't fear the ones who can kill the body. And we're gonna quote this scripture again later, but fear him who has power to cast both body and soul into hell, him should you fear. I think that brings it to another level. If you have opportunity to tell someone that they, that they do not have to bear the burden of their sin any longer. They don't have to have the guilt over their wrongdoing that Christ has paid the price for all of those things. Don't don't fear rejection for telling them about the love of God. Don't fear what they might say to you. I, I mean, friends, don't be afraid of that, of sharing the gospel here in America. I mean, what are they gonna do? Ignore you for a while? I'm sure that that's probably about the worst of it. Call you crazy? I've been called worse than crazy. And I'm sure you have too. Now they might shoot you in Saudi Arabia or Pakistan for saying something like that, but not here. We have this privilege. And if you're tempted to fear rejection for any reason, consider Jesus's rejection. Consider Paul, he was rejected too, all of the early disciples. You see, the work of telling is considered real foolishness to the world. Look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, the Bible says, so where you can find So where can you find someone truly wise, truly educated, truly intelligent in this day and age? Hasn't God exposed it all as pretentious nonsense? Since the world in all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered dumb preaching of all things to bring those who trusted him in the way of salvation. I'm so glad I'm considered dumb for the sake of the gospel. I'll be a fool for you, Jesus. Remember, how many remember that song from years ago, Dallas Home? I'll be a fool for you, Jesus. That's just what I'll be. Stranger in love with God above. That's all right with me. I forget what the rest of it anyway. Anyway, that's what it is. I am so glad that God chose this because to be honest, there are a lot of people in this room that are smarter than me. I understand my place in this world. I'm not here to make anybody happy through eloquent speech or that I'm so gifted or like that. There's people that can remember more stuff than I could ever learn in five minutes. You know, they could, a whole lifetime, they can bottle into just a short thing. They've got it, right? And I'm just amazed by that. I'm amazed by the talents and gifts of other people. So I am glad that there was a role in this world that God could put me in, right? Come on, this is for all of us. I'm just using me because I know that I'm the biggest fool of them all. He says in essence that we're to be a fool for Christ. No matter what the world is doing, no matter what everybody else is doing, standing for Christ looks very foolish compared to the world's ideas. And it, it is just that, that thing. And we live in a place, in a culture that really embraces, you know, atheism and a, a Christless progressivism. A, a large church here on the West Coast side of things is, is kind of 150. Now there's mega churches, but you know, in the, in the Midwest, there are eight 900 people. And this is where we're sent though. We're sent to this left coast area. This is where we're planted to people that are far from God, They have no interest in the things of God. And, and the, the, for Jesus... That simply that Jesus is more like Santa Claus with a dash of fairy, t- fairy tooth uh, tooth fairy guy. Uh, that's kind of the mentality of Jesus in our culture, in our world today. And, and people are crazy for, for following Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul says it so plain that the message of Jesus in, in our text here is just craziness to the world. And he compared it to the world in general, and they're actually uh, the ones that uh, do not understand because they think that their smarts or their intelligence raises them above the need for just such foolish, simple faith. They consider preaching, preachers, teachers of the Bible in any way foolish. Foolish. And the thing that, that we're doing today here is getting more and more dangerous in parts of the world. I, I gotta tell you, much of what we hear from contemporary academia is telling the, our, our younger generation, this generation, for Christ followers, they're dangerous and to stay away from them and, and, and that they all belong in a nut house. And I can't believe that people actually live this way or, or they wanna follow Jesus. But you know what? They're wrong. I wanna tell you that right up front. They're absolutely wrong. Preaching and telling people about Jesus and what God has done, chosen to confound them, to puzzle them is to what God has chosen. And, and look at the promise in verse 21 of this text. It says, God will use what seems foolish to make them ponder their position, to confound the wise, to make them think about their philosophies in comparison to what is true. So if you're called foolish, if you are made out to be the fool, rejoice, be happy. It may, I don't care if it doesn't make sense in the world. I'm unconcerned about what people might think of me. And, and, and that is really important, I think, for a Christ follower. Boldness requires that. And I'm more concerned about God's opinion, and we should too, than what anybody else is going to think. Come on. Those of you NRA people, I'd rather be judged by 12 than carried by 6. Come on. All right. Well, I had to get that in there somewhere. The work of telling begins, though, with prayer, doesn't it? I mean, we just don't all of a sudden say, I'm going to be bold and we run out there and be bold. We have to get the power first. The scripture tells us in Acts that they were given power. And because God filled them with the spirit, that power redirected, caused them to be witnesses boldly. They had no fear whatsoever. And we know uh, most of them were, were martyred for their faith, for following Jesus. They were considered crazy. Christians was a, sl- it was a derogatory term used for the early church. It wasn't something to be proud of the work of telling begins with prayer. If our prayer closet doesn't produce the work of the mission, come on friends and abundant life and leaders and everybody that you that know me, I want us to get this whole thing. The first week I talked about where I came from and my story and it's online and, and you can go back there and the, the next week we talked about the significance of the calling of the church. And and this week we're talking about one of the great missions of the church. And that is being sent that we are sent to where we're going. The whole world is coming out of the closet. Christians should too. If everybody else can be bold about what they're saying and and Antifa can storm the streets and all kinds of people can wave rainbow flags that God designed because as a promise to the world that he would never destroy the earth by water again. If they can be that bold, then why can't Christians talk about Jesus openly and freely and and just be proud of who you are in Christ because Christ (laughs) has made us free. We're followers of Jesus. If you haven't been caught, if you haven't caught on, excuse me, on being trying to keep everyone um, in a group in prayer here or at church, I hope you do catch on. We have been trying incessantly for six months to get all of you engaged in a small group or in prayer meeting. I mean, every single one of you. Hope my greatest hope is not that our programs at the church wouldn't flourish. I want them to, but that the first priority for everybody in church would be to be in a small group and in a prayer meeting. And and, and this has failed um, because there's about 10% of the attended group of church that actually attend a home group a Wednesday night or a prayer meeting. And maybe you've Maybe you've never done it before. Maybe you think, well, I'm too old to change because I used to do those things and now I'm too old, so I'm not gonna do them anymore. That might be the case. I don't know if that's you. Uh, maybe we should all feel ashamed. Um, some of us used to come, but we gave up because it's, maybe it's not fancy enough or the leader is too boring or, or and if it were me, I'll give you that, that's for sure. But maybe you've been busy, I don't know. Maybe you've been at war, I have no idea. Uh, maybe you've, uh, come on now say ouch or something, the church is God's plan to reach the world. And and if we don't get together, if we don't pray, if we're not seeking God, if if we're not being the church and, and, and we come to Sunday morning, I'm not talking about church as usual in America. Church as usual in America is come to church on Sunday morning, hear a fluffy sermon and a good band, go home and feel happy. The church, I believe what God really wants it to be is to be connected. If you are not connected friends if you don't have relationships and fellowship and friendship if you haven't been in we've been doing these books you know and we we've, we've been we brought and everybody took one and we got over a hundred I don't know how many books we and, and everybody's like yeah yeah and then they're just fade off and we fall away and and we go the next step I'm telling you I'm just saying the plan for the church right now God's idea is that the church is together now if you if you're feeling a little sting this morning, I want to let you know always that I love you and I'm not, I'm not here to, to, to hurt anybody, but the church, this has got to be the priority for moving forward. We've organized, Pat, uh, Pastor Pete, Pastor Josh, and I have gotten together and we said, what is the priority for the church? The priority that Jesus says in the Bible is to make disciples. And so as we went through the process of that, we thought, well, what can we do? So we developed a curriculum that we would all go through. As a, and, and we had 10% of the people really participating. And I'm like, God, if you want that, then you're gonna have to send in new people that will get energized about this. Help us old crusty rusties, to get off our rear ends and actually get engaged. Let us be a part of the church. Don't let us just come to Sunday morning just because we're discouraged and need a little lifted up music from Shane's guitar solo. And we walk away and we go, Oh, well, that was really fun. Pastor had three points in a poem. Let us engage. Do you bleed with somebody that's hurting in this place? Are you feeling their pain? Are is your own faults and your own hurts being shared in a, in a group in such a way that they can pray for you, encourage you, and lift you up and give you counsel? Are you the church? If you are and I am, then we start with those groups. We start in prayer. We pray together. There are not many Christians in our area. The Puget Sound is, Pierce County was the lowest church attended county in all of the United States for the longest time. It's been surpassed by some county in Alaska now, but we're number two. Praise God. There's no more than 8%, 8% of Christians in the whole Puget Sound area. This is the most unchurched place, one of them in all of America. There are less than, I don't know how you have less than a person, but there is less than one out of 200 people in all of our area that will go to church today, anywhere. Less than one out of 200 in the whole area. That's about as good as any good communist country, right? So we are sent to a place And the stuff that we've developed and given through abundant life hasn't been just of the approach that will not reach our culture. We have thought through what we've presented to to make you be able, and myself, to be able to take us from someone who's far from God, has no faith in God, atheistic, and living a life that's far from God, in order to get them to say, well, there is a God. That's the first chapter. I'm discovering now that because of all of this, that there is a God. And then secondly, that that God, that creator, identifies with the Bible. Then the next chapter is that we increase, we take it through the validity of the Bible, the scriptures, and how we came to know the scriptures. And then what it means that man has fallen and salvation and so on, all the way through spiritual gifts, right? These are the things that we need, you and I need as tools to be able to put in our toolbox to reach this generation, this First Corinthians one that's highly educated, Very, you know, they think things through, they're very analytical, but they're far from God. Matthew chapter nine, verse 37 says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Notice what Jesus doesn't say here. Interestingly, he doesn't say to pray for unsaved people. Now, we find that elsewhere. But the focus of this prayer, this focus, is to the church for its mission. This is something I think we need to understand. God is the Lord of the harvest, the Bible says. I think to understand this is that God is sending, that we are the harvesters, and Jesus tells us to pray for more laborers, more people in his church. Come on now. The priority of prayer is for the church. The priority of the prayer is for the health of the, the, the leadership of the church, for the people of the church, for the unity of the church, for the for the pastors of the church, for, for the people that are serving in ministries in the church, for the church, it's health, it's mission. That's the priority of the prayer that Jesus tells the leaders and the people of his day for the church. This is what I want you to do for the church. I want you to pray. That God would put more people in my house. Why? What does he say? That Jesus says that my house may be filled. So that some guy can have a great television ministry with golden uh, lion statues behind him. You know, slick hair and you know me, right? There's no way. But that we would just be the church. Pray for laborers, he says. Win the lost at any cost. That's the message of Jesus. This is the priority of prayer. Remember that song? There was a song by that years ago. I remember. Win the lost at any cost, go out and win, rescue from sin. Days almost done, low sinks the sun. Souls are crying, men are dying. Win the lost at any cost. It was a hymn, I think. What a message. Souls are crying, men are dying. This is the gravity of what we face. What is the primary mission of the church? To make disciples, right? To make fully devoted followers of Jesus. And the power to do that begins with prayer. Do you attend our prayer gatherings? Why not? Sundays at 9 a.m., are you here? First Sunday nights of every month, 6 p.m. Wednesdays at 6 p.m., are you on the prayer page at church where we share the needs of the church? And many people pray. I'm not saying that there aren't people praying. Don't get me wrong. But are you engaged in that prayer life of the church? This is the fundamental starting point of the church. We're called to share Christ with people. God is the only one who saves them. You see, I think the message of Jesus, he's talking here, he says, I want you to pray for more laborers in the harvest field is because God's already doing the work. You see, spirit-filled people seeking God for more laborers should be one of the greatest priorities that we have. Now being a disciple also means sharing Christ with lost people and we understand this, right? People may not like what we have to say or they may reject it and we can share it in love and they may turn us off and we know when to back off. We don't wanna be pushy because we don't want them to resent the word, right? We're not out in the street corner beating them up with a Bible over the head when they walk past, that would hurt, right? Some might change the subject and that's okay. Our job is not to shove it down their throat or convert them. We don't convert anybody. Or we think that maybe that's the case get them saved, get them baptized in the Holy Spirit, get them serving on the deacon board all in one Sunday, right? They're going to be teaching Sunday school and leading a small group the Monday after. We're going to get right to it here. We're called to the harvest. Look what Jesus says in Acts 4.12. Jesus is the only one who can save people. I'm going to say something that may seem interesting. God is the one who prepares the heart of people to come to Christ to be saved. Now, I know that you and I have a part in that. Obviously, we share faith with people, and and those words make them think, and just because we love them, they can send something different. I believe that. But it is the Holy Spirit that draws people to believing in Jesus. No one comes to the Father unless the Spirit of God draws them. And I want us to hear this carefully. I believe our biggest part in praying for laborers is key. That's really important. Because the laborers are disciples carrying the message for the Lord of the harvest. I remember the Holy Spirit transporting Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch. Now the Ethiopian eunuch is sitting there. He's reading Isaiah and he says, he's trying to think through this. He's really interested, right? He's trying to figure out what this means. The Messiah hadn't really translated in his mind. All that had happened in Jerusalem was a busy thing. And and Philip, he's taken and he's transported to the Ethiopian eunuch. God has already prepared the heart of this guy. God has already set him up for Philip to walk right in to where finally the guy says, well, here's some water. Just baptize me, right? I'm ready now. We need to pray, I think, that God would give all of us divine appointments. This is the work of the laborers, right? Right? God give us divine appointments. Send me to a person whose hearts you're prepared already. Sometimes I think we think it's too much work. It's too hard, and they have to be all this elaborate convince. Some people do. They need convincing, and we plant the seeds. Don't get me wrong, but it is the Lord who saves people, isn't it? Now the word does come through us. It is a work of God brings conviction and all that, but it is the Holy Spirit that draws people to salvation. Now hear this, since God calls us to pray for laborers in the harvest field and we're called to do the work in the harvest field, we've got to conclude that God is doing the work in the hearts of the people. This is why the church is so important and our mission is significant. The church produces laborers. We come here and our faith is encouraged. Our mission is handed to us and, and we get our marching orders and the supplies we need all the things that God has put in our hands, his, his word. How many of you know how to effectively make someone understand that there is a creator? How many of you can make the argument of the DNA? How many of you can make the cosmological arguments that are so vital for this generation? How many of you can make any apologetic argument for the existence of God whatsoever that will be a compelling factor for someone in their life? How many of you can bridge the facts from creator of the universe and connect it to the God of the Bible? And how many of us can connect the God of the Bible to the revelation through Jesus Christ? All of those things are vital. If we are to engage the culture, we have to know what we're talking about. This is the job of the laborers, to be prayed up, studied up, and ready. How many of us can walk them down the Romans road? How many of us can say John 3.23, 1 John 3.23? How many of us can say Romans 10, 9 and 10? How many of us can lead people in the simpleness of salvation? Do you know that you're far from God? I tell you what, there's been so many times I've been at lunch with other contractors or builders or architects or whatever, uh, job coordinators, supervisors, and I've sat there. And as we have lunch, I say, do you mind if I pray? Every time they say, I don't mind at all, even if they're far from God. So I'll pray and I'll say, Lord, bless our food and bless Mark or Joe or whatever, Jim. Bless them in their work today. Help us to get a lot accomplished and thank you for providing this food. That opens a lot of doors. Just that simple connection. And there's a lot of ways that you do that, right? We are in the world. We're not of the world, but we are in this world. The mission has real eternal significance. I've got to hurry along. I'm rambling now. So John chapter nine, verse four, all of us must quickly carry out the task. Now this is new living, this is the way it puts it. All of us must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us because there is little time left before the night falls and all work comes to an end. Notice it says work, to where all work comes to an end, not salvation, uh, not not the workers, but when all work comes to an end. There's countries that are closed to the gospel, we can't get in there, the work has ended. Just last year, I think it was a year or the year before when Russia closed its doors to all missionaries. We're gonna stop this, they're they're tired of the message of freedom and hope that there is through Christ. That's how America was born, right? Oh, man, that's good stuff. Our places of employment, some of you, through rules on speech or in policies that are trying to limit your speech and what you can say about Christ. The gravity, though, of our situation is eternity. If you believe the Bible is the word of God and, and that is true, then we know that everyone will be judged. And there are several things we're going to be judged for. Number one, we're going to be judged for the stupid stuff we say. Ephesians 5.4 says, there should be no obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, greedy person, such a man as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with empty words because of such things God's wrath, because of the words God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. Stupid stuff. I know nobody ever has obscenity or foolish talk or coarse joking, right? The Bible says these are out of place for the person of God. Matthew chapter 12. But I say to you, every idle word Jesus says that men may speak will give an account for on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. So we're going to be judged for the stupid stuff that we say. I'm so glad I'm covered by the grace of God. The Bible tells us though, that people do do not have Jesus, do not have a covering. They do not have a ma- a master that they can go to, a God that they can say, God, forgive me for my sin. They have no recourse. They just, the lingering guilt just weighs up on their shoulders. We're also going to be judged, the world will be judged for the sins. We think that we're hiding. You know, in every corner in America, there's a video camera. I can't walk from here to Double A meets without getting picked up by the church security cameras and Brink and Sandler security cameras and double A meat security cameras. I mean, we have cameras everywhere. The saddle, we have satellites in orbit that can read the, the, the label on my candy bar in the dashboard of my vehicle. I mean, I, it's, it's incredible, right? We're under monitor, we're under surveillance all the time. Just taking a trip to the store or the work or bank, I'm probably recorded a dozen times. Imagine a huge video screen though, friends, a screen display, not just for God to see, but for all this world to see of your life. Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Romans two sixteen, God will judge men's secrets through Jesus. First Corinthians four five says, wait till the Lord comes, he will bring light to what is hidden in darkness, and expose the motive of men's hearts. Wow. God's gonna reveal the motives of my heart. Second Corinthians 5.10 says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that we may receive what is due to him for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. We can't hide. People can't, uh, what we say or think, how we treat others, our secret sins. We're judged also. We're gonna be judged by the sinful desires we feed. Jude 18.19 says, in the last times will be scoffers, follow their own ungodly desires. These are the men who divide you who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. This is the culture, right? The culture is saying all of these progressive ideas or things that are in the world today are all justified because they're just natural. It's natural for me to feel this way uh, about this girl. And it doesn't matter what relations we have before marriage covenant before God, because I just feel like this is the right thing to do. I feel like I love her. I feel like I'm attracted to a person of the same sex, right? I feel like, and these are all things that we all face, right? None of us are immune from the whims of the ways of the world. We're, We're all in that same position. We all face these struggles and these trials in our flesh, but this is the way of the world. It says, if it feels natural to you, do it. This is something I'm not ashamed to say. This is the message of the word of God, that it is wrong to always follow our natural inclinations. It was just yesterday I felt like punching someone in the face, but it was not a good thing to do. My natural inclinations want to do a lot of things. They want to sleep when I know I should be working. They, they want to do something else when I know I should be mowing the grass. They want to go for a motorcycle ride when I know I should be doing anything else. I have natural inclinations. You do too. The good news is the Bible says, if we believe in the Lord Jesus, confess the Lord Jesus with our heart, we'll say, not confess our sins. We're confessing that we're sinners by nature. Hebrews tells us that our conscience is cleared, cleansed from guilt, from the believer, from our life. It doesn't mean we're not saved, you're gonna sin. But it says we confess our sins to relieve the guilt. Praise God, hallelujah. There's freedom in that. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. It doesn't mean we're not saved. If you've messed up, if you've fouled, But see, people in the world don't have that. That is the advantage and joy of the believer, friends that we've got that freedom. And the world is saying, the message of the world, if it feels good, do it. It's only natural. Self-control and the things of discipline that the Bible teaches us are thrown out the window because if it feels good, if it's natural, it must be right. The church is wrong. Those religious freaks are just nuts. If it feels good, just do it. And God says, that's not it. I have something better. Most importantly, we'll be judged for our, our faith who and what we believed and trusted in. Many people in this world believe that hell is just shoveling coals with their buddies, and, and the devil kind of looks like Jack Nicholson, except without the horns, um, and, and that it's all going to be wonderful, and I'm just going to have, it's going to be a kind of like a smoke-filled casino with, with a lady on every arm, and I'm just, gonna, that's just, I'm just gonna be living it up down there. Everybody's cheating at cards, that's the kind of thing. But the Bible paints an entirely different picture. At the end of time, hell will be opened up. The Bible says, and all unbelievers will be sent to the lake of fire, which is the second death. I want us to consider in these words that are I'm about to read from Romans chapter 20, of every person that you love that's far from God, that you know, every person that you work with that's far from God, that is, doesn't believe in Jesus, has no relationship with him whatsoever. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 11 says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God. The books were open and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This picture is amazing and it's gruesome. It's a picture I get in my mind of outer space, if you will, and a great throne zooming through at incredible speed with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords sitting on it. And as it approaches the earth, his holiness is so great and so powerful and so vast that all wickedness just flees from it. It has to get out of the way. Like one, you walk into a room and there's some flies. Have you ever done that? I walked into a, a barn the other day at somebody's house, there were flies. But when I approached where I was going, the flies went away. Everything that was wicked and impure just goes, dissipates. It runs from his presence because it's so powerful. And holiness is so true and pure and amazing that it runs from him. The Bible says plain here that Hades, the holding place for Those who have rejected faith in Christ will be opened and unbelievers will be judged before God and they'll be sent into this lake of fire, which is called the second death. Friends, there is no other choice but Jesus. We won't. People in this world and your friends and family and mine won't be able to stand before the judge of ages and be able to say, I believed in reincarnation, so just let me through. They're not gonna say I believed in good karma and I wanted to come back as a cow. That just won't be true. They won't be able to say, oh, I was just atheistic. I didn't believe in anything, so you should just let me through. It won't be like that. We don't judge God. He's not bound by our likes on Facebook or dislikes on Instagram. We who have been around for only a few short years, what makes us think that we can judge God? Luke chapter 12 verse 4 says, I tell you, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that can do no more. But I show you of whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has power to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That puts a whole new perspective on judgment and real death. This is one of the great reasons for our mission. Eternity is a long time. Working in the mission gives life meaning, also because of God's grace. You know, some may appeal to the Turner Burn message, but I gotta, I gotta believe in our culture that searching for love, in so many ways, probably will be turned more when we show them the love of God, and the grace of God. The words of Paul are so powerful in Acts 20. He says, my life is worth nothing unless I use it for doing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about God's wonderful kindness and love. We have the job of telling of God's wonderful kindness and love that he exists and he rewards those who actively, passionately desire and seek him. Grace has great meaning because grace only comes through Jesus. Acts 4.12 tells us that salvation is found in no other. Matthew 1.21, salvation in no other. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 10, 42, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin. Hebrews 2, 3, how will we escape if we great, ignore such great salvation? 1 John 5, 11, he who does not have the son does not have life. Jesus is exclusive. Jesus is the only way. Christianity is not a simple religion that we simply practice and like Judaism or Islam. We have a set of rules that we're supposed to adhere to. Faith in Christ is so much more than that, friends, isn't it? It is a relationship with a living God that even this morning as we were worshiping God, we felt and sensed his Holy Spirit in this place. How do you feel about Jesus? Not just how do you think and the rationale of the truth of God's word. That's very important. That's foundational. I'm not dissing that at all. I'm saying it is the thing. But how do you really feel about Jesus? Jesus. Westminster Catechism, it says the chief purpose for man is to, to know God and to enjoy God forever. Because of God's grace, we have relationship with him. And when we have relationship with someone, we spend time with them. You buy them gifts, you serve them, you spend time with them, you share laughter, you share your sorrow. And this is the reason that More, I believe that we find in the parables, more than half of the illustrations are that the church, half the church is left behind because they haven't got relationship with Jesus. They're in ritual church, but they're not in relationship church. They're not in a place where the church, God's idea, by the way, is not a priority for their life. They're not connected in a group. They're not in a prayer meeting. They're not further engaged Grace gives meaning because of love. You know, Luke chapter 36, 47, do I have this? Whoever is forgiven a little, loves little. Now, you know this parable, right? Jesus is talking about um, what's happening there. He's sitting there and a woman comes and she is sorry for her sin, you know, and she's crying and comes into the house and she cries and she bows down and she anoints his feet and she wipes his feet with her hair and her tears are dripping. And she's so sorrowful. And Jesus tells a story about someone who is forgiven of a small debt and someone who's forgiven of a large debt. And then he asks the question, he says, now you're ridiculing this woman because they were ostracizing. Matt, don't you know? who this woman is. I mean, she, she is here doing this. You, should, you know, she's not the kind of person you want to hang around with. And Jesus rebukes him. And he tells him this story. And then he says, he who has been forgiven little loves little, but he who has been forgiven much forgives much. I think maybe we need to sometimes be reminded of what we've been forgiven for that we fully appreciate the goodness and grace of God. Man, if that doesn't energize our witness and make us bold as the church, as the mission of God's church. One of the things I was going to do this morning, and you all have been, if you're on the prayer page, you know, Aaron Kelly has been down and out. He's had uh, some kidney stone issues. And uh, so we're praying for him, but he just returned from Africa and uh, Malawi and he was, going to share with us some pictures and things of his trip and what they did. And when he came in this week to talk to me uh, early in the week, before he, before all this happened to him, um, the excitement in his, you know, conversation and the, the passion that was there because of the work that, that was accomplished while well, he was there installing solar panels on an AIDS orphanage in Malawi. I mean, And he's talking about, because he's an electrician, he knows, he's a really smart guy, and and, um, he was so enthused. I, I think that we need to have that kind of enthusiasm all the time. 190 million people, estimated America, have no relationship with God. That makes America the third largest mission field in the world, next to China and India. Have you ever thought about that? Just because we have so much freedom here doesn't mean that everybody that you know knows Jesus. And we need to tell them. Amen?